How often will Sandy Tox describe herself as shortcake? If you feed a cow marbles, do you get marbled steak? Thank you very much, you're one in a million. Thank you very much, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for feeding William. Thank you very much, thank you very, very much. Since we last recorded, Martin and I went on an Austwick family trip to Cadbury World. Oh, yeah. That was a wonderful trip. And they played the Roses ad, did they? Not only that, they have like a special avenue of the ads with dioramas so this one had like a full-sized elderly woman lifting off the back of a of a car yeah. like an animatronic not a video of a woman lifting no. the car and there was also the video on a loop of that ad so i just stood there watching transfixed for several minutes the roses ad there i was thinking i was giving you a bit of nostalgia actually fresh in the memory that is a corker of an ad because who is. doesn't remember thank, thank you very, very much, much for, for feeding, feeding william <laughs> who was william was he a cat or a He's fish goldfish he's a goldfish right? but yeah, yeah. You're thanking someone by giving them Cadbury's roses. That is a real backhanded gift. I imagine they were more exotic in the 1980s than they are today. They still weren't Quality Street in the 1980s, were they? (laughs) Anyway, I didn't intend for this diversion, but I enjoyed it, as they'd say on Just a Minute. It's the the same with Cadbury Worlds. No, I'm not Cadbury sure. Wells is absolutely an intentional diversion as you head into the Midlands. What else are you going to do? <laughs> well, I'd say it's not necessarily an essential stop, but I did enjoy it. Martin's mum literally bought a chocolate teapot. <laughs> oh well, that's quite cool. She seemed really pleased about it. Anyway, um, <laughs> Lindsay has written in to say thank you very much. Do you see? Thank you very much for making answer me this. You that's what she's welcome, written Lindsay. in to say. She says, I first started listening to your podcast in August 2008. Blimey. On a long, dark and mildly terrifying eight-hour coach journey from Beijing to Shandong province. I was 20 years old and it was my first time abroad alone. That's actually amazing, isn't it? To be someone's reassuring comfort, you know, sound of home as they venture abroad. Um, Very flattered to be that. Yeah. I didn't know anyone. I'd just done a 14-hour flight and your podcast got me through. And I've listened ever since. Oh, that's so nice. I also nearly made it to AMT 100 Live. I got a ticket and then was unable to attend because I had swine flu. Oh, yeah. Oh, she was that one. Oof. Uh, she says here it was a problem very much of its time. I, I think that's right. Real 2009 flu. Yeah. Uh, I am still gutted, she says, about missing out. And I've decided to try and rectify this to at least some extent by booking tickets to come and see The Allusionist live at the London Podcast Festival. Yay! Could you book another couple of hundred and then the room's full and I can stop <laughs> stressing about it? Oh, well, uh, maybe you can uh, advertise the event, Helen, by oh, means of answering her question. Thanks. She says, Helen, answer me this. How long will the Allusionist live show last for? Well, it will commence at 2pm on Saturday, the 16th of September. This is like working Ticketmaster again. Where's the best place to sit? Somewhere in Hall 1 at King's Place, just north of King's Cross in London. Yeah. And um, I haven't written it yet. So I think I'll probably bang on for about an hour. Advertise it, Helen. Advertise the hell out of it. Don't say I I haven't written it yet. I think I'm going to give you an hour of extreme pleasure. Right. But allow for an hour and a half so you've got some recovery time. No one leaves the London Podcast Festival the moment an event finishes, presumably, because there's other stuff to do there, right? Yeah, why wouldn't you stay and go to one of the many other excellent shows? It's three for two tickets. And I'm doing six events in four days at this thing. The Live Illusionist, Saturday at 2pm, as aforementioned. Uh, The Live Bugle, which I think is the Sunday with my brother Andy. Uh A Radiotopia panel, uh, Song by Song with uh, Martin Austwick. That's on Thursday at 9pm. Uh, it's me and Judge John Hodgman talking about the songs of Tom Waits this time. It's going to be great. And Jordan and Jesse go on the Friday. And you're doing that, um, that maker event with uh, Julie and Jesse and uh, Imri. Not yourself out, Lindsay. Get the equivalent of a camping ticket. Make a weekend of it. Yeah. 
If, if they had camping tickets, that'd be sensible because it's spread over four days. Well, but there's nowhere to erect a tent at King's Place. On the towpath of the canal? Yeah, it's a bit risky, isn't it? Mixing with that with alcohol, I would argue. Giles from Exeter has written to say, I was listening to Answer Me This 353, where you were talking about whether or not it was morally right for Josh in Exeter to take a picture of a wedding guest getting bitten by a dog. I remember it well. That wedding guest was me. <gasps> it was pretty painful at the time, and it did mean I needed three stitches in my lip. Hmm. Luckily, it hasn't scarred too badly. If Josh has the photo, I'd love to see it. And if he does sell it as a stock photo, I'd like a cut of any earnings. Well, there we are. That's, That's a very, enough, very gracious victim. Yeah. I think even if I was involved in like a near-death accident, hmm. afterwards, even if it had scarred me for life, I'd want... You'd want the pictures. I'd want the photo if it existed. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? I've probably mentioned this before. I got knocked off my bike by a driving instructor when I was a student. I don't think you have mentioned that before. Have I not? There's still so much to discover There's so about much us. To learn, Nearly 11 years in. Still yeah. finding new depths. Um, so I, I wasn't badly injured, but I was concussed. And I have no recollection of it. So had there been someone passing and just happened to be taking a photo of their friends and I was in the background getting knocked off <laughs> my bike, I would, I would be curious That would be a great street it. view screen grab, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Same when um, my my mum had her her car crash that nearly Mm. killed her. Seeing the photo of her car, I think, was intriguing to her because she couldn't remember it. But looking at her car, the entire front is just completely squished. Like the difference between a sandwich and a toasted sandwich. Yes, good comparison. I think it was just... She being the molten cheese. And I think it was just intriguing to imagine how the hell she made it out of that alive. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, we like gory things, don't we, as, think, as humans? I think, as I say, I think what happens to the photo afterwards is up to your taste and decency as yeah. the photographer. And don't put it on sick.com or whatever if you don't want to. But I think by <laughs> all means... <laughs> make the picture. Um, and thanks too, by the way, to Courtney, uh, who sent in a photo of the moment her bridesmaid smashed her dad in the face with a croquet mallet at her wedding. <laughs> I'm sorry, Whoa. it was a really funny looking photo. Because also it was a beautiful photo with like pastel skies. Yes, it was... Dad very formally dressed, adorable yeah. little bridesmaid dress. The bridesmaid was a kid. Yes cute little girl uh, and also thank you for sending in the picture John and Lorelai from their wedding Jewish wedding where they were doing the bride and groom on chairs thing when the bride went crashing to the floor from the chair uh, which they say is a treasured moment of their wedding they have the picture on the wall yeah why not it's why the not? funny picture here's a question from Ash Fay from Edinburgh who says I went to the Edinburgh International Magic Festival yeah you did you winner did you know that was a thing I, it wouldn't surprise me. Edinburgh has so many festivals. It has so many festivals, but... Why not magic? I bet that's a fun festival. You know, I think it's diminishing returns, in all honesty. I think maybe I'd see a sort of night of competing magicians trying mm. to get the top prize. You know, I could bear two hours of different magicians doing their best trick. Mm-hmm. Five days of lots of magicians doing similar things. Maybe you don't have to go to the whole thing. How many like times can fringe. you see someone caught in half or... You go to the fringe and you think, how many times can I see a white man doing stand-up? And then uh, <laughs> 12 hours later, you realise 12. Um, but anyway, Ashfay says, uh, the festival was amazing and even enchanting. Excellent. But it made me wonder. Surely wonder is one of the many emotions it's designed to provoke, Ashfay. Uh, Helen, answer me this. Why is the traditional magician's wand a black rod with two white ends? Well, there's a practical purpose for it, first of all. It's very theatrical because your eye follows the white end when the magician is gesticulating with it. Mm. So, Like a laser pointer, but Victorian. Yes, sort of like a laser pointer, but Victorian. So they can be doing sleight of hand with their hands while still gesticulating at the thing they want you to look at. Diversionary tactic. Exactly. So yeah. it's perfect for misdirection. Mm-hmm. But ones evolved from staffs and sticks that were used in ceremonies religious ceremonies or mystical ceremonies or even medical ceremonies but when you're swishing one of those around it's much more likely that you're going to hit yourself or someone else in the face than with a little one so they shrank 
to be more performative, but this particular design, which was originally ebony with ivory ends, this was a popular wand because it originally belonged to Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, the French magician who is considered the father of modern conjuring. Who so Houdini named himself after. Houdini named himself after. And it was him who popularised magic being performed in theatres and at parties rather than at fairs. It was Robert Houdin who wore evening dress, you know, the tailcoats, oh, yeah, yeah. rather than wizarding type clothes. Mm-hmm. And so because Robert Houdin was such a big deal, a lot of his visuals and a lot of his gadgets and tricks were ripped off by other people. Mm. So I reckon... That's why this wand became the symbol of magic, as as did the top hat and the tailcoat, because that all came from there too. Yeah. Do you know any magic tricks? I am absolute bullshit at magic. I don't understand how it's done, which I think is great, because it means even the simplest trick, I'm like, hmm, very good. But you do understand how it's done, because in your answer, you just explained diversionary tactics, sleight of hand. That's how yeah, it's all done. but I still don't know It's how. all lies. It's all making you look at something else whilst doing the but thing. But that's just like saying Usain Bolt's really good at running fast. Like, there's a, there is more to it than No, that. it's not, because I couldn't train to be like Usain Bolt ever. I, but I could I, learn magic. I don't think you could. Like to be I could. top 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 notch, like a top notch. Yeah, okay, you could. all right. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be David Copperfield, but I could be a proficient <laughs> close-up magician by spending twelve hours a day in my teenage years in my bedroom doing just okay. that. I don't think I'm that good at sleight of hand. I think I'm manually quite slow, so I think that would be a problem. I'm I think, not I think dexterous you've enough. Taken my question and turned it into how you, as a thirty-something-year-old woman, would be a magician. What I'm asking you is, as a child, did you never even just try to learn some magic? As a child, these things still pertained. So you never tried. I had a book about how to do ah, magic tricks. But here we go. No, these ones were like how to slice a banana before peeling the banana. That's a good trick. Well, what was the answer? You kind of make a loop of thread inside the banana yeah. and then pull it like a cheese wire. Brilliant. Yeah, but... The grand reveal hard. is a bit disappointing. You're like, oh, it's a banana that is already a bit brown. Exactly. <laughs> a bit mashed up. Because it's hard to get a really clean cut when uh, you're going thing. in through a banana peel with a needle and trying to get all the way around. You need some really good patter as an eight-year-old to get the grown-up who's watching interested in the big reveal of a banana that's already been cut up. I think this is why I didn't cleave to magic, though. I didn't want to do patter. I've always been very uncomfortable with social performance. Mm. I'll perform mm. on a stage in an agreed performance context. I don't want to be performing out of that context, but still definitely performing. Yes. So, so Murder Mystery for Evenings, for example. Oh, I hate those. Yes, yeah, exactly. Can't bear it. Actually, I mean, my friend Jeff, I don't think you'll mind me saying... This is Magic Jeff. Magic Jeff. With the forks. <laughs> yeah. Actually, his, his email address was literally Magic Jeff for a while. He, he, you know, that's how he liked to define himself. And he was that teenager. Mm. He, was, he was one of my best friends as a teenager. Mm. He spent all of his teenage years in his bedroom learning magic tricks. And essentially, I mean, I'm simplifying here. He did that in his teenage years because he was embarrassed to talk to girls, basically. Okay. You know? I think a lot so, of people, how, that's a written to magic, yeah, isn't it? And, yeah, and he became a really good magician. But what was weird was, even into his early 20s, He'd come to, and this is probably why Helen remembers him. Yeah. He'd come to my house parties and inside his jacket would be five spoons and forks mm-hmm. ready to bend because right. he could do the Uri Geller spoon bending. Right. And rather than go up to someone and say, hey, I'm Jeff, what do you do? Where do you live? Nice to meet you. What do you want to drink? He'd say, look at this spoon. I mean, that would be his first. <laughs> and actually it would work. He'd always have a crowd of adoring people around him at the party. Mm. Yeah. And, and he also, he could do the David Blaine levitation. I still don't know how what? he did that. I mean, I, I know that it's, you know, Hover poles Jeff. down the back of your legs, but I don't know how, or you couldn't see them when he's walking around. And again, that involves a lot of advanced preparation when you're going out for a night, doesn't mm. it? But yeah, it was sort of so obviously a shortcut from social awkwardness that that 
I always found unappealing. Like To me, it was obvious that that's what you were doing. So that in itself became a thing you wouldn't want to boast about. Maybe that's another reason why I didn't do it, because I was obviously socially awkward. <laughs> why make it more obvious? But also, you don't tend to get nearly as many women doing magic, do you? And, it, and I don't know what that is about the male psyche that makes it more likely you'll obsess about learning those tricks. I remember all the books I would get, that you get these books of sort of magic tricks, and it was always this one about like putting an egg into a bottle. Yes. yes, soak it in vinegar. Soak it in vinegar, yeah, exactly. And then clean That was it. in my magic book clean, as well. Clean oh, oh, that's good. That's Banana a good... tricks and egg tricks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose they don't involve special equipment. Or a live yeah. rabbit. Because once you've got mm. the book, you don't want the book to say, and the solution is go to Selfridges and spend 20 quid buying trick yeah. cards. or bendy wand. Yeah. Magic does strike me as something that the young Ollie man would have done. Mm, yeah, no, I had boxes of magic tricks. Did you perform? I was constantly performing, Alan. I was the I mean, opposite to you. I know, I <laughs> know. The question was, when was I not performing? Um, so yes, part of my routine was magic, yeah. I could do... Um, so Marvin's Magic did this trick that they sold in Hamleys, which was a pile of pound coins. You said, let me make these pound coins disappear, and you just took them and left. Um, I can't remember how it worked. I think one, one pile of pound coins were hollow inside. So it looked like a pile of pound coins, but actually it was just a hollowed-out tube. Mm-hmm. And you'd put it on top of the real pound coins and sort of scoop them up somehow. So yes, effectively, what you just said is what you'd do. You'd steal someone's money, but it would be a funny <laughs> joke. Um, so that was one thing. And then there was another one that involved... It was a kind of egg cup-based trick, but with a fake egg and a fake cup. I know the one, yeah. It's like know, a kind of um, which, which cup is the egg in type, type uh, puzzle, and then you'd make but it But it was disappear. a specific red plastic device that they only sold mean, to yeah. kids that looked like a circumcised penis. I don't know what that thing's <laughs> called. That thing... Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I wouldn't have described it that way. But anyway, but yeah. yeah. Golly. Did that. But I wasn't very good, so. Didn't get all the girls then. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> Pussy Central from then on. Hey, I didn't want to learn any more magic ever again. Want to see my circumcised penis trick? <laughs> You've got a question. Email your question. To answer me this podcast at googlemail.com Here's a question from Tom from Northampton who describes himself as a long-time listener, Jagerbomb drinker and student at Newcastle University. Wow, this is like you're someone on blind date. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I know a lot about you, Tom. Uh, Well, I'm going to roll back the screen and reveal more about him. (laughs) Tom says, I just watched an advert for Jägermeister. Ollie, answer me this. When did this and Jägerbombs become commonplace in the UK? Mm. I'm 22. And when I first started going out to bars and clubs, etc. around the age of 17, they weren't common and people hadn't heard of them. Now they're everywhere and pretty standard. My first and pretty much only experience of Jägermeister was when I was at university. And this was uh, February, March 2000. And I remember it made my friend throw up all over a wall. Yeah, it's pretty vicious stuff. I don't like it. I mean, Tom, we are older than you. And yes, when we were at university, Jaeger bombs sort of had just come in. So actually, they may not have reached Northampton or Newcastle yet. But why would you know about them before you were 17 well, anyway? Exactly, yeah. Like if you're eight, it's probably not going to cross your consciousness that much. But generally speaking, the, the answer was it, it was around the sort of late 90s, turn of the century that this Jaeger bomb thing began to gain traction. And it has got steadily more popular in the years since. And to explain why... Broadly, I'd say it's almost like a kind of viral marketing, but for alcohol. Ah. Um, Because they didn't have any traction in this country, Jägermeister, as a spirit. It wasn't something people drank here. It's something from a small German town called Wolfenbüttel, which is near Hanover. It's been made there for nearly 80 years. There, by the way, in Germany, it's still not very popular. 
like oh. you, you can get something like a Jaeger bomb, but people basically don't drink it because it's seen as a bit of an after ink. But in other countries, first New York and then America generally, and then London and then Britain generally, they've been able to market the bottle, the look of the thing, the very stern 1930s German look. Park that thought, I'll return to that. That gothic-y script that the Jägermeister mm, has written in. Yes. Uh, you know, the Nazi-looking, I'll return to that. They've been able to promote that as an <laughs> mm. exotic um, kind of what-the-fuck-is-that kind of vibe uh, and then create interest in it, uh, oh, which no. led to the Jägerbomb. So what you need to know about Jägermeister is the brand is still owned by the Mast family who have been making the drink in Wolfenbottle for 80 years. The bloke who invented Jägermeister had inherited the business from his father who'd started it as a red wine and vinegar business uh, in that town <laughs> some 50 years before. That hadn't really taken off, so he came up with this herbal liqueur spirit thing, which is what Jägermeister is. Ugh, but it wasn't Herbal? Called... Yeah, what did they do to those poor herbs? It's... <laughs> They developed this spirit, and it was kind of reasonably popular at the time in the area. But here's what happened. Wolfenbottle became a favourite haunt of Goering. Oh. oh. As in Hitler's number two and commander of the Luftwaffe. Hmm. It was where he used to go hunting at the weekend. And then when the Nazis came to power in 1933... None of this is on the Jägermeister website, folks. Mm. <laughs> you might not be surprised to learn. When the Nazis came to power in 1933 and Goering was appointed interior minister, one of the first things he did is he created regional Jägermeisters, which means masters of the hunt, because he was into his hunting. Mm. And he made himself um, the Grand Lodge Master of the district near Wolfenbüttel. And the bloke in the Mast family who'd created the drink we now know as Jägermeister saw a marketing opportunity here. The Nazis were popular at the time. They'd won an election. Goering was a big cheese. He thought, this is a uh, popular movement which needs a drink named after it. So okay. he uh, changed the name to Jägermeister and changed the font to a National Socialist-looking font. Wow. Specifically, he might as well have called the drink Goering. That was basically what everyone in the village would have understood it to mean. I mean, it can't have... It hurt the subsequent marketing that he didn't actually put a swash deck on the bottle. I think that's right. I think he played it absolutely right. Um, <laughs> right on the nose. No pain. <laughs> um, because it was just Nazi enough that everyone understood the innuendo at the time. Just Nazi enough. <laughs> There's a, there was a crucifix on there, wasn't there? On the bottle, as well as the sort of uh, sheep's head? What, what I mean, deer's head? There's, there's some pretty gothic iconography, uh, but it's on the right side of Nazi from the point of view of the end of the war. The British, actually, it was, allowed them to carry on brewing it because they said it wasn't so closely associated with Hitler that it needed to be banned. Mm -hmm. um, so they carried on with the same bottle and the same typeface. Obviously, decades went past, and actually, I think it was a Jewish guy who brought it to New York, ironically, and turned it into this sort of cocktail sensation. But it was always that Nazi iconography that created the interest in it. People saw the bottle and they were like, what the hell is that? They tasted it as, what the hell is that? It, it's not a rum, it's not a vodka. You know, you have to taste it to understand what it is. And it created mystique around it. Um, and no one knows exactly who first dumped it into some Red Bull and created the Jägerbomb. But it was essentially this kind of seeding concept of viral marketing. Let's just give it to barmen. Let's sponsor rock tours. Let's get people talking about this exotic looking gothic mm. German thing. And right. that is essentially what, what caused the Jägerbomb to go into Stella. So it had to go to America to become worldwide famous. As so many people do. Ye yes, although as far as I can tell, the Jaeger bomb itself is a British 
uh, invention. People in Britain love things that get you really pissed fast. Yes, and uh, it's not something that either Red Bull nor Jägermeister like to talk about, even though if you analyse the amount of Jägermeister that's been sold just as a shot on its own versus the amount sold with Red Bull, you know, it pales into insignificance. I suppose it would take the edge off the sweetness of Red Bull a bit. I think it's more that everyone knows it, as you say, it, it can create some pretty violent effects in people. Um, that neither company wants to be seen to encourage reckless drinking. But, of course, they have built their businesses on it. Um, you can only drink that recklessly. In 50 years' time, surely there will be a commercial partnership between Red Bull and Jägermaster and you'll be able to buy it ready-mixed. Like, you can mm, buy, you know, Gordon's gin and tonic, yeah. Surely. Because they know that everyone's drinking it together, really. But for the time being, they're kind of pretending it isn't happening and just, you know, putting aside the bad publicity mm. and enjoying the money. Mm, it's more of a sipping drink. It's very quaffable, isn't it? The Jägermeister. Mm. <laughs> That's the market they're going for. You can also get a bomb Jäger in which the quantities are reversed. No. A pint uh. of Jägermeister. That is not how <laughs> I want to die. Let's take a break now and have our intermission. And what better way to take a break from present day answer me this than mm. with a little snippet of olden days answer me this that's right yeah because we're not on commercial radio we don't have to break from the banter that you're enjoying now to give you something completely different like someone trying to sell you ppi protection we can <laughs> well, we, we can could. instead sell you more of this our first 200 episodes are available for sale on itunes and amazon but better than both of those answer me this store.com as are our five albums of exclusive content oh yes uh, and our best of episodes yes and some apps it's all there and here's a little clip from answer me this episode 171 here's a question from dana in austria who says a while ago a friend of mine went to a checkup at a gynecologist whose patient she has been since puberty after the examination the female doctor typed in some sort of synthesis into her computer and then was called out of the room with the document still open on the screen. My friend was suddenly gripped by an overwhelming desire to read what had been written about her. Obviously you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, She'd been told that all was well. Uh, so she took a quick peek at the screen. There, she read to her utter amazement, patient is a young professional with a plump ass and a very wide vagina. No, wow. <laughs> wide vagina. Why? Plump ass, wide vagina. That's the more you say it, Helen, it doesn't make it any more palatable. Well, Dana says, my friend has a black belt in taekwondo and definitely has no plump ass. I cannot vouch for her fanny, but according to her husband and former lovers, there is no noticeable slackness. That's not the point. <laughs> Answer me this, Ollie. Should my friend remain with this doctor and confront her about writing mean stuff about her private parts, thus letting her know she had a peek at the gynaecologist's computer? No, because or... that person is then near your genitals with a scalpel. Go to someone else. I don't think they use scalpels in routine examinations, Ollie. It's not common, Ollie. They have it in their power. Oh, yeah, they do smear tests with a chainsaw. I'm a little bit worried, Ollie, about our phone line. Me too. It's just not been the same since Skype took away our cheerful voice greeting. To be clear, they took away voicemail functionality on every Skype account in the world. It wasn't personal to us. Okay, good. That makes me feel less got at. But for us, it's kind of a big deal that when you dial the following number... 0208123 You no longer hear our voices saying, Hello, this is Ultimate This, if it's a question. <laughs> so you have to rely on your own intuition that you have called the right number. You yeah. have. Yeah. Leave us a message. Yeah, we've had a lot of hang-ups, though, because I think people are not sure. So another option, listeners, 
if you're dubious, mm. is to record a voice memo on your phone or similar device and just email it to us yes. at the usual place. Yes, indeed. Because we, we love to hear questions in your own we voice. We love it. And we particularly love it when we can hear them because you're, you're not in an area of shit reception. Yes, So absolutely. that's another thing in voice memos' favour. Yeah, 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 true. But if you disagree and you like Skype, we're at Answer Me This. The following person made it through. Hello, hello, and Ollie, I'm Martin Soundman. Um, my name's James Higgett from Crystal Palace. I'm currently on top of Sugarloaf Mountain in Wales. And I'm wondering, what is a sugarloaf and why are there so many uh, mountains, at least two, named after it? There are two in Wales alone. Are there really? There's one in Carmarthenshire, the other is just outside Abergavenny. There are 450 sugarloaf things in Australia. Get the fuck away. It's not just mountains, it's geological features as well, like sugarloaf-shaped lumps. Because a sugarloaf is sort of like a bullet-shaped brick of sugar. A loaf of sugar, if you will. Ah. I thought it might be an allusion to bread making. No, yeah, I think like it was just... a kind of fruit loaf. No, no. It was actually just the way that sugar emerged after the refining process with like the separation for the molasses. It was like this hard, white, very heavy, bullet-shaped thing. It was pretty huh. big. You then carved off bits of it with a tool called the sugar nip. But does it dictate a certain kind of mountain? You know, Sugarloaf Mountain in Brazil. That's the famous no, I... one. So Portuguese explorers in 16th century Brazil looked at that mountain. They're like, that looks like a sugarloaf. It's called Sugarloaf Mountain. And that happened all over the world because they're like, that thing looks like another familiar thing. So let's just call it after that thing. Okay, but then why are there no mountains called Big Hill? Well, because they are Big Hills. Not just they look like Big Hills. They are them. But some of them are called Big Hill, but in a different language. So you might not realise it. So I don't very many people know today what a sugarloaf looks like. Why were they so widespread? Or was it just explorers that knew what they looked like because they used them for for Russians or something? That's how sugar came at the time. It wasn't in nice granulated bags. So when you got some delivered to your home, it would be a a a little pointy mountain. And you'd you'd have to make it last a long time because it was a precious substance. But these things Mm. were like 30 pounds of sugar in a highly compressed, heavy form. Wow. And also, I guess if it was solid, it meant it was harder for pests to burrow into it and shit all over it. (laughs) Have you ever climbed a mountain? Climb? No. (laughs) Have you been dragged up on a school trip? Yeah. How tall? Not very. I mean, do you remember doing a hike and how many hours it took? Probably a couple of hours. That's the scale of the mountain we're talking about. My school, we went to Scarfell Pike in the Peak District. And it took about 12 hours. Oh, jeez. Yeah, to take a load Mm, of 10-year-olds up there. Why would you do that? Why would you take a load of 10-year-olds? Character forming. And see how it's changed my life. You remember you and your now wife and I and Martin went to a friend's wedding in Scotland. And the next day, Martin climbed a mountain on his own and then slid down the wet grass back on his bottom. I do remember that. That was amazing. And we went to a kind of hipster tea room that somehow we we went to a castle there we went to a fancy castle we went there too yeah yeah i've got a video of you in the greenhouse there have you we got a lot done while martin was sliding down a mountain he'll be sliding down a mountain on his bum (laughs) on his bum i mean going mountaineering in wales specifically takes me back to a particularly perilous school trip i think i've described this before in the early days of the podcast how wales is just out to get you yeah it would have been in that context was this the trip where you broke both your arms yes and your face that's right yeah. Not to rub it in, I'm just recapping for people so, who uh, are Martin new will remember when I, when I say that it was a school trip that was two weeks in the summer and it was a dual purpose affair. Mm-hmm. You said you'd have loved this trip. Okay. Week two was mountaineering. I never made it to week two. Right. Oh, week, week one was a tour of various different nuclear and coal power supply stations in Wales. And I said that would be my kind of Yeah, eight thing. years ago you were like, yeah, that sounds like a great trip. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it does sound okay. There's also an alternative energy centre there. That's probably yeah, we went there too. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, absolute nightmare trip for me. And day one, I vomited up a 
lot of vegetarian pizza all over the youth hostel carpet. Oh, God. Mm. Um, and then day five, as Helen recalls, smashed my face out on a seesaw. And the arms at the same time? I broke two wrists, one arm, my front two teeth and my lip. On the yeah. seesaw? One wrist, my teeth and the lip were on the seesaw. Then as I fell onto the floor, I put the other wrist in front of me to protect myself and then broke my arm on the concrete. Imagine the damage you could have done if they had allowed you up a mountain. <laughs> it's <was laughs> exactly. not bad thinking about. If, that, if you did that on a seesaw in a playground, hmm. which gets up to a height of about four feet. I think that's probably why they sent me home. Uh, well, we have another question of mountains from Liv. Hi, Liv. Uh, she says, I'm Liv and I live in Japan. She could equally have said, I live and I live in Japan, but she didn't. Uh, she says, uh, I climbed Mount Fuji last weekend. That's a good one, isn't it? Mount Fuji. Yeah, one right. of these celebrity mountains. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Mm. After the insistent prodding of my boyfriend. Sounds motivating. I think you can't really blame someone else for your personal goal, Liv. You must have wanted to do it, really. Uh, it is a gruelling six-hour ascent which we did for 12 hours because of the sheer amount of people climbing up it. There was a long queue to the top. Oh, God. Mm. You don't imagine there being a queue, do you? No. Um, And it was a four-hour descent, which we did for eight hours because we were very, very tired. Fair enough. So in what sense is it a four-hour descent then? Everyone's tired, presumably, when they do that. I don't know. I think probably there are some who just really bolt down. It's it's like whether you're the kind of person who prefers a show that's got a short second half Mm. or whether you prefer the meat to be in the second half. Some people prefer the first half to be like a little amuse-bouche, set the scene, and then everything happens in part two. I prefer hour and a half, part one, interval, have a piss, part two, 45 minutes, time for the loose ends, showstopper. Do you want a meaty but short second half? Like a pepper army? I want it to be emotionally significant, uh-huh. but short. Okay. Yeah. So um, you want narrative first half, yes. emotional payoff second half. Exactly, yeah. And of course a reprise. So it sounds like mountaineering would suit you. Because it is generally... How? How are you drawing that into a metaphor well, it's, for mountaineering? It's, it's I know ge- I tried. It's, <laughs> it's, generally, it's generally quicker to go down a mountain than up a mountain. It's still very stressful on the, on on the, the joints knees. and legs and thighs. Well, that's why you and, and things like that, isn't it? Anyway, she says, Helen, answer me this. When did climbing Mount Fuji become such a fad that there's such a long queue? I don't think the monks of old who climbed Japan's mountains were that many. I attach here a photo of the queue to the summit from the ninth station where we took our rest. It doesn't show too many people because this was way past sunrise already, but as you can see, there is a queue. I've seen the photo. There is I wouldn't call it a queue. There's a lot of people considering you're halfway up a very tall mountain. I would say if you want a specific date for when Mount Fuji became crowded... (laughs) Yes, please. It would be 2013 because... That was the year Mount Fuji was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And that year, the number of climbers escalated, I think, 35% pretty sharpish. Interesting. I wonder as well whether increased tourism to Japan, I'm Mm -hmm. guessing that has happened from the West recently, is causing this fad because perhaps Japanese people aren't as into mountaineering as Western people. Or they are. Maybe that's the thing. They're getting more of everybody on the mountain. Mm, And there's a pretty short climbing season. So the official climbing season is 1st of July until early September. If you're a hardcore climber and you really know what you're doing, you can go just before or just after that, but there's much more danger of snow and it's really windy and it gets really cold. Mm. And if you want to go outside of those shoulder seasons, as they're known on the edge of the official seasons, then you have to have a guide, which is expensive and you need equipment for getting through the snow because that will have uh, fallen on the top of it. So Liv, your boyfriend's insistent prodding might have been very sensible. Yeah. Go for it now before you get killed in an avalanche. Yeah. So it's busy during the summer, which is when you went, and particularly during the school holidays, which judging by your email is when you went but also 
It's a very famous mountain. It is. And it's a famous mountain that is doable if you are an amateur mountain climber. Oh, is that right? So, so if you're the kind of person who goes up Arthur's seat, I mean, I've done yes, that. Yes, or table mountain you can, you can, can you? do. My dad used to do it when he was a drunk student in Cape Town. I'm trying to think now whether I did when I went to Cape Town. No, I just looked we at it. We did cable car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a lot quicker, FYI. Um, so are you surprised that this is a popular climb? Well, I can think of another reason that may have increased its popularity recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a complicated fad, but in a word, Instagram. I think that's yeah. the other thing, isn't it? Because it, isn't it interesting that you pinpointed 2013, but I mean, that's also roughly the time that people started endlessly taking pictures of themselves I just think, for the sake of posting um, to their friends what they were doing. I think Mount Fuji is one of those ones that's very, very photogenic if you're not on the mountain. Mm. So actually, oh, there's lots of mountains which have beautiful views, mm. but that's one of the ones where you can just take a picture of it and people go, wow, that looks like a beautiful mountain, from yeah. a distance. Yeah, whereas actually in Liv's close-up picture, it looks like a pile of mud. It doesn't actually look very attractive, but I still think the fact that you can say, I mean, like I said, I'm using the word Instagram, to mean a whole slew of websites but uh-huh. I mean the, the, if you put an update on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere saying you're on Mount Fuji you're going to get a lot of likes aren't you and I do yeah. think pics or it didn't happen exactly and it, that bucket list phenomenon of or, sort of show us that you've done this thing I think that's partly responsible for a lot of these kind of amateur mountaineers sorry Liv but you know she, she things, would admit I think yeah giving things a go that maybe they like it spurs people on doesn't it I can tell my friends about this in real time do you think that also intensified the queuing because people were slower because they were taking photos yeah a lot? Well, it's like, have you seen that photo that's been doing the rounds this summer of just tourists at the Louvre in front of the Mona Lisa doing <laughs> selfies and it's extraordinary no one's looking at the picture I mean yeah. to be fair I always do when I'm on holiday believe that the best picture is the picture of someone I know in front of a thing because I can't get a picture of the thing somewhere else. No, I, I think the best picture is of a funny thing you wouldn't get at home. Well, I've noticed I... that from your photo reel. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the fact that you ascribe the busyness of Mount Fuji to the same thing that has made freak shakes popular. <laughs> and if you don't know what a freak shake is, listeners, is that phenomenon of a milkshake that is extremely top loaded with mm. solids often bits of cake like a whole cupcake sticking out of the top of a milkshake bits of bacon the other day i saw a facebook friend posting a picture of a freak shake with a burger on a stick coming out the top Ugh. uh indeed why would you stick the burger onto the milkshake well because instagram that's the thing isn't it yeah somewhere up mount fuji now some fuckers eating avocado on toast and taking a picture <laughs> of it. and that person's an idiot your current website i look rather shabby i've got an ugly font and my graphics are scabby and i have more wasted space than westminster abbey add a mezzanine guys you need a makeover provided by squarespace their award-winning templates give you a new face seriously i promise it will be so very nice unlike your pronunciation Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. I've just set up a new uh, page with, with Squarespace. Have you? Yeah. You kept that quiet. Yeah. That's got a little my, sly monkey. It's got all my music on it. What's it called? He's renamed his, his band No Longer the Sound of the Ladies. Pale Bird. Oh, I, I don't mind that. Do you like it? Well, as an artist, you're going to be called Pale Bird. I'm going to be called Pale Bird, and also all the music I've done in the past is on the website, Pale Bird Music. So. But it's great, because I can put all of the different band things with like nice pictures, and you can click through and get links to all the social media stuff. It's great. It is great, and it also has all you need to power an online store as well. So if you actually want to sell... Are you giving your music away for free, or are you selling it? Well, I'm selling it through, through third parties, but if I wanted to, I guess you I could, could do it through you Squarespace. Could sell it through Squarespace as well. Uh, and uh, it's because of Squarespace's patronage of podcasts generally, but specifically this one, that we're 
we're still bothering to do this so <laughs> thank you to them <laughs> i mean without squarespace we wouldn't have 22 songs about squarespace exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, the high peak of our creative output of well uh, my life certainly. that is absolutely true you. if you want me to release that as an album <laughs> i've got the capability now we do get requests for an album of our jingles we really got 22 22 that's extraordinary 22 squarespace jingles i keep track on a spreadsheet but the offer is the same in every squarespace jingle yeah. and that is that you can try out squarespace you can build yourself a website uh, fiddle around in their two-week free trial and then if you want to opt in and keep that website you can get 10 percent off for a whole year if you use the code answer here's a question from heather from Vauxhall who says whilst walking to work today i noticed a man walking with his guide dog mm-hmm. ollie answer me this how do guide dogs know where you're going I understand if you use a guide dog on the tube or the bus, the announcement will prompt you that you're in the right place and you need to get off the transport. Yeah, I'm pretty sure those announcements aren't for the dogs. But this man was walking along the road. So how does he or the dog know when they've reached their final destination? Okay, well, obviously I don't know this particular blind man in question, um, but most blind people or people who are legally blind or people who are walking around with guide dogs aren't actually totally blind. There are visual cues they can pick up to do with, for example, light. If you walk the same route every day, there are all kinds of cues, what you hear and what you smell and what you sense. The guide dog is there as your belt and braces don't walk into a lamppost thing. The guide dog is not there to take you there. You know the route. You're actually in control of the dog. They have a special term for it, which is intelligent disobedience. That's how the dogs are trained. Intelligent disobedience? Yeah, so in other words, the dog is, at the moment you're about to walk in front of an oncoming car, the thing that stops you. But the rest of the time, you can tell the dog where to go as long as you're not Mm. about to hurt yourself. So the dog is more about the immediate and you're more about the overall plan. Exactly, yeah. Intelligent disobedience sounds like a phrase that the tech industry is going to co-opt. Yes, doesn't Uh, it? Yeah. yeah. Board of disruptor. So there's all kinds of ways that a blind person might be tracking to get to a place. Well, now you might have a a GPS thing that goes off when you're in that yeah exactly so on your wrist you could just be getting vibrations but also more traditional things you can count paving tiles these are things that sound weird if you're not blind but subliminally if you're blind you do it all the time automatically you can hear the way air currents come out of buildings but if you hadn't been there before so you didn't know yeah well you wouldn't go if you've never been before with just a guide dog because the dog wouldn't know where it was going so that's the answer you'd only go with someone a few times learn the route and then take the guide dog so so the answer is the person knew the route but it's been quite interesting looking into this because i Obviously, I realised there was a lot of training for a guide dog. Yeah. Care to guess how much? Two years? You're very close. You're actually overstepping it slightly. A year and a half. Yeah, 18 months. That doesn't surprise me. Do they start from when they're puppies? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it costs loads. Which Again, is... not surprised because you've got to house a dog and have experts training it. During a lifetime, a guide dog costs £35,000. And how much would an average dog of similar size cost? Oh, that's a good... Yeah, you're right. There's probably and... a... What's the working life of a guide dog as well? Like, are they retired at a particular age or are they allowed to work until they're kind of old and stinky? Yeah, okay. I see your point. Nonetheless, that's a, it's 18 months of training and 35 mm-hmm. grand investment. And because it's all done through charities, blind yeah. people pay 50p for the dog. Right. So that's why when you raise money for guide dogs for the blind, that's why they need the money, basically. And the most interesting thing, I thought, actually, was because I thought the most important thing about training a guide dog would be combating their instinct to sniff other dogs and show independence play around exactly yeah yeah. but actually apparently the most important thing is training recall which is basically Mm -hmm. saying fido and the dog coming back that's the most important thing because a blind person can't see where they've gone so you don't want a bolter you don't exactly here's a question from chris from manchester who says ollie answer me this why are lions called the king of the jungle when they don't live in or near jungles 
That is actually an excellent question. Very good. I'd never thought about that. I just assumed, without really thinking about it in in any deep way, that lions must live in jungles. But of course they don't. Tigers do. Are they non-domiciled for some kind of financial reason? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think let's break down the phrase. So king of the jungle, right? The king bit, I think, is quite easy. You can see why civilizations for thousands of years have compared the animal kingdom mm-hmm. and the role of the, the male lion in particular to the role of monarchies around the world and the role of the king. Because for a start, you can easily identify which one is the king of the pride. He's got fancy hair. He's got fancy hair. And he sleeps 20 hours a day, so he's got a kind of fuck-off attitude and he's quite regal, <laughs> you know. And everyone Basically does like work for him. the sun king, isn't he? Yeah, so, yeah, so exactly. So he's the top of the food chain it's Henry VIII in animal form, basically, isn't it? Right. So, you know, that's why there are so many statues to lions. That's why there are references to lions in the Bible and killing lions as being the greatest strengths that man could have, It's one on the coat of arms of Britain. It's on the coat of arms of Britain, the Netherlands, our good old friends in Luxembourg. <laughs> These are countries in which lions are not native. So, yeah. you know, the mythology of lion being king had spread all over Europe and all over the world with people that had never seen a lion but love and the yet, idea of one. Well, no, what I think it is, is even though they'd never seen a lion, they'd heard from explorers who had seen lions. Had they also seen taxidermied lions that hunters had killed and brought back to Britain? And well, Luxembourg? probably that too. But my point was, those explorers hadn't seen tigers, because tigers are a lot more elusive, and they live in the jungle. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't really seen jaguars. They'd only seen lions at that mm-hmm. point. So of course, the lion's the top of the food chain, so and it looks like a king. So you see how it became the symbol of strength and regality. Yes. But actually, the obvious answer, tiger being king of the jungle, basically the people that had been telling them about lions hadn't told them about tigers. They didn't know about them. Right, so, so tigers well. do live in jungles. Tigers do live in jungles. Well, lions do not live in jungles. Correct. But they were like, well, this jungle probably should have a big cat in it of some kind. Let's uh, <laughs> transpose the line there. We'll never get found out. it just one of those things where it's a shorthand for Africa because British people weren't really smart enough to know better? Well... There is an etymological reason as well. The word jungle comes from Jangala in Hindi, and that translated means an uninhabited place. It doesn't mean a forest. So it covers forests like we'd have in Britain. It covers Mm -hmm. any kind of wilderness, any part of the world that doesn't have human structures. It's about emptiness from humans. So king of the wilderness is kind of what it means. It's it's basically just king of the animal kingdom. That's what it really means. Mm. And apparently in India, there are still people, native Hindi speakers, who would still refer to deserts, as we'd call them in the West, as Jangala. Right. So, so the lion is king of the empty space that humans aren't in. Okay, so lion is just top lion in the place where lions live. Top cat, but not living in a bin. Could be. Well, could be. That's an area where humans aren't, generally. Yeah. Except on uh, the days where the council come round. Helen, Oliver... Though life is full of questions, there are answers you must know. One. No, it will not fall off, but moderation in all things too. Yes, there probably is, but we won't find out in our lifetimes. Three. Most people prefer colliery, but my personal favourite is Dalton Four. If you try and slip a one, it would ruin your friendship. Yes. Here's a question from Niall, who says, I'm an American student living in student housing in Germany with about 20 other people. Wow. A housemate, that is a lot of people in 
one house. If it's a house. If it's halls of residence. Yeah. Okay. A housemate recently made these lovely personal wood engravings for everyone here. Aww. Would you like a wood engraving? I suppose if someone no. that you liked gave it to you, yeah. Yeah. it would mean more. I wouldn't buy a wood engraving of my name. No, but it's a very sweet gesture that seems to have taken a long time to make. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They are all personalised to some degree with their names and a bit of their personality. A bit reductive. Yeah. You, I you definitely wonder, would not you? want that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't want to become aware of what other people think of me. It's too upsetting. I was thrilled to get one, says Niall, but my name was misspelled oh. and now reads... Nail, N A I L instead of Nile, N I A L. I am very thankful for this great gift, but I do find it annoying that my name was misspelled. Uh, so, Helen, answer me this: mm. Should I ask them to redo it, or simply embrace that no one will ever pronounce or spell my name correctly? Could you borrow the woodworking tools and just proofread it where you you switch the letters around? That's like a little curve with an arrow on each end to indicate that Mm. the things need to be switched that's true because if you if you ask them to redo it that's probably a lot of work but they'd probably find a way of of if you were to do that which would be a bad idea they'd probably find a way to correct it like that anyway so maybe you could try that yourself but i think maybe you should get used to it because what you have is not only a very sweet personalized gift Mm. but one with a story exactly yeah it's a conversation starter yeah if someone comes past and they're like, Nail, is that you? And you're like, well, no, actually, it's not a funny story. It's not that funny a story, but it's no. a little a little <laughs> thing you can play don't, with. Don't get big-headed with the story. Maybe I'm just so used to having my surname misspelt. And actually mm. my first name by a lot of you who write in. Who spells Helen with two L's? I know, I've Seriously, never seen that. I have never seen like, that. I forgive it with O-L-L-I-E when people write that. because yeah, O-L-I. It's arguably even more common than my spelling of Ollie, O-L-L-Y. But Helen with two L's? Never seen it. Never, literally never seen yeah. it. Zaltzman, I understand. Tricky name. But yes. if you were doing a wood carving of Zaltzman, you could look it up first. I agree. I think maybe it's quite a nice souvenir. However, uh, I think if you did ask them to make you a new one, then they would feel ashamed and guilty and bad. But then the new object they made you would be tainted with those feelings too. Where you looked at it and I only got that because they messed up the first gift and then I forced them to make you me another gift. You definitely can't ask them to make another one. No. I mean, I had a similar-ish situation... Um, I once presented a TV piece about glass blowing, and what? Um, <laughs> I, what? And the process of the film was I was learning how to cut glass mm-hmm. and then blow glass. This is terrifying because I filmed you learning to cut a Welsh wooden love spoon, and, and I've got a tremor in my hands yeah. and no sense of handicraft. And hot glass can uh, really cause you a lot of damage. Yes, it does exactly. And the director had decided, partly for that reason, partly for time, because it takes about five hours to set. That actually we couldn't really show me do the whole process because we'd be killing five hours in the middle did they do a here's one we've made earlier they did a here's one we made earlier so what we did is we filmed the first bit where i learned how to cut it and i genuinely cut the word ollie out mm-hmm. but then i had to open the kiln later as if that was my one and go wow it's so easy wow it's amazing um and the problem was it was in this really infantile style so it was kind of like baby blue and fluorescent orange rendering of mm. my name on clear glass like for a child's bedroom door Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's such a shame because it is a souvenir of this thing. But I'd so much have preferred it if only they asked what my son's name was, that, I, that the story could have been I was making one for my son and then I'd mm. have a sign to put on my son's door, which would be nice. Yeah. Whereas actually, I don't want this hideous thing anywhere in my house apart from on my son's door. Good thing it's breakable. Well, what I did in the end is um, I put it behind my desk in my study against the window 
but my desk is higher than the window, so I can't actually see it. (laughs) So I know it's there, but I don't have to look at it. So only the birds can see it. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. It certainly does. Mm. Yeah. How was it for you? Pretty good. That was all right. Yeah, I'm a bit hot. Yeah, it's a bit hot hot in here. here. Yeah. Yeah. A bit humid. Yeah. I think maybe we should go off and have a Sichuan hot pot. That is what we did after the last recording. And that we are was... very close to Martin's regular Sichuan hot pot haunt. What's it called? Red and hot. Red and hot. And did you find it because you were googling something else? <laughs> <laughs> um, man, just call Paul. Just mention me when you go in there. Yeah, mention Mr. Martin, and uh, you get treated very well. <laughs> Explain, because I'd never been to a Sichuan hot pot restaurant concept before. Martin suddenly got very into it this January. I had a very negative experience in Shanghai many years ago and I went uh, it's the beginning of a folk song isn't it (laughs) with a hot pot it's relevant Uh, with a hot pot it it made me not very well and then I I went to uh, Red and Hot in Chelton Street with a friend of the podcast Dave Pickering Hmm. and I saw people having it and I was like that looks really delicious but it made me really ill you thought 10 years on though maybe it's time and it was so delicious so the gap basically weekly ever since exactly so the gap between my expectation of like horrible diarrhea and and tears (laughs) and 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 the delicious food I got was so huge right it completely exceeded my expectations which were very low and then they remembered martin of course because he's I'm there, back there every week he's, he's the only white man that is a repeat <laughs> hot pot visitor excellent well good we'll, yes. we'll do that we want to go for a hot pot but we also want you to send us questions for mm. the next uh, answer me this that will be out at the beginning of october but of course there's a retro one in the middle and our contact details are on our website answer me this podcast.com but remember, we are having this tricky time with our voicemail, so you may want to email us a voice memo just to be sure. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other bits of us on the internet, there's plenty of that. Yes, Helen. tons. I make <laughs> The Allusionist. Just did an episode where I attended America's second largest crossword tournament. No one else is plugging their podcast this week like that. Only you. I don't know. I don't know who else was there. Uh, <laughs> you can find that at theillusionist.org. Uh, I do various different podcasts. Uh, my, my main show, The Modern Man, is on a break at the moment. Um, so uh, let me tell you about The Week Unwrapped. Uh, that is a weekly show in which I and uh, three clever members of The Week magazine's online editorial team sit down to debate the news stories that you probably have missed because they're not making the headlines, but they have significant uh, impact on our lives but if you like i want some respite from being terrified yeah, of like, nuclear obliteration exactly all anyone's been talking about the news this week is the end of the world i want to know about or the, the royal of, baby who yeah, gives a shit exactly i want to know about the role of health apps in the nhs or secret kiwis infiltrating the australian government what? come and find us uh, search for the week unwrapped in your podcatcher of choice uh, or there's links on my website ollieman.com Martin. Uh, so my podcast is called Song by Song. Uh, it's about Tom Waits. Don't forget Song by Song has a live show with Helen and uh, John Hodgman uh, from Judge yes. John Hodgman on the 14th of September. So come along to that column, and the other five events I'm doing at, at the, the London, London Podcast, podcast Festival. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can you can download the episodes at songbysongpodcast.com and you can get tickets to our live show there. Uh, and finally, uh, just a reminder that if you want to support the show with your money, uh, you can do that by buying all of our things at answermethisstore.com. Uh, but also if you just want to chuck us some money, if you just want to donate to the show, paypal.me slash answermethis. Right. Well, that's... that really is us. Like, because all it is is a picture of us, and it just says, "Would you like to transfer some money directly to Helen's hospital, Oliver Man?" The answer is yes. Those aren't fraudsters. That's us. So yeah, thanks for that. So come back for a fresh episode of Answer Me This on the fifth of October. There will also be a retro Answer Me This on the twenty-first of September. So you can hear a whole episode of one of our amazing archive achievements. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully solved. Bye. Bye.